was actually fairly successful as um, a form of surgery. So trepanning where like they just drill a hole in your brain. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was actually quite good at doing things like relieving pressure or fluid on the brain. The problem was infection. So it wasn't the brain drilling that would kill you. It was the germs. <laughs> that's that's true now, CEO now mindset. Now we have Twitter for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's true, that's true CEO mindset, right? I imagine that's going to be like a 2018 trend. Oh, absolutely. Um, started by the teens. Drill a hole in your cerebellum and fill it with raw water. <laughs> it won't be that's the thing is when we when we bring back trepanning as a way to like you know have business intelligence. It's not going to be teens doing it like with the Tide Pods. It's going to be like the director of marketing at Uber or something who wants to like you know very naturally and traditionally get an edge on the competition. I mean, I it's really... going to launch the career of teen YouTuber Trey Panning. That was terrible. <laughs> Miss. Correct. Like, I really, I really hate, I think I'm on the, like the wrong podcast because I actually have very little engagement or uh, interest in technology. What I do have is a very healthy fear and respect for the supernatural. So really... If you want to talk about like the sense of futurism, I'm like, yeah, sure, but I'm first gonna have to like consult the augury. Like spooky Logan Paul holding a séance in the suicide forest. <laughs> Ash has told me that uh, I'm, as a Gemini man, I basically just will suck for my entire life. I really cannot be fucked with Gemini's anymore. Like they really have an inflated sense of their own social capacity and elegance. Oh my god! Oh my god! Um. What about what about cancer? Oh god! I mean, fine. <laughs> I, we get it. You're a tough cookie, and I know that because you've been sobbing into your meal for the last twenty minutes, telling us how resilient you are. Oh, she really I'm, knows us. Damn <laughs> shit! Um, I've got to like just leave and like cry on the bus and reassess my life. I'm so sorry. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I knew like at some point this was going to happen. Of course. Anyway, I go to trash America for two weeks and the other trash boys are already being dommed by a dominant woman. <laughs> <laughs> We're already being dommed by Dominic Toretto from Fast and Furious. But hey, we all have our clothes on, so... Um, you, were, you were also recently on an episode of Good Morning Britain. I was, for my sins. Um, I was brought on because there's this MP for Romford called Andrew Rossendale. And he comes out like every six months or so with just some completely um, intellectually impoverished, poorly thought out policy, like tattoo all babies with the Union Jack. An MP? No. A Tory MP who's just completely devoid of ideas. Who'd have thunk it? Um, And basically he's managed to hold on to Romford by um, being a far-right candidate without making people vote for a far-right party. Like that's who he is. So we debated each other roughly a year ago about the Union Jack and its cultural meaning. And then I get a call from Good Morning Britain being like, hey, do you want to come on? Uh, There's this MP who wants to force schools to make all the kids stand up once a week and sing the national anthem. And so I did the pre-interview and I was like, well, look, it's not actually about the national anthem itself. I think this is a really dumb policy. This is the first education policy we've heard since Damien Hines came in um, in in the cabinet reshuffle. And this guy I happen to know hasn't 
raised a question in parliament on education since 2010 so he's a complete fucking joke anyway so i get in there and there's like Susanna Reed, like you know blinking twice in the hope that someone will come to her rescue then the show Susanna Reed. <laughs> like waving I, semaphore to hope that someone will blast through the window and drown <laughs> I, I do actually think she's like D-Lo a comrade. Like, I've got no evidence for this, but I just, I, I've got righteous vibes from her. And Piers Morgan, who's just like the angriest slab of ham, like on the Morrison's like deli counter. And then there's me and Andrew Rosendale. God, and when he had that massive argument with Tommy Robinson, it was like alien versus predator. It's like, who am I, vo- who am I rooting for here? Whoever wins, we lose. <laughs> also predator. Like, that's not a question. Like, we're a pro predator podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, that wasn't even a question. I don't, you know. Why, why would you ask something as dumb as that? Only in the alien verse. Um, so we're you're a pro predator and peeing with your shirt pulled up above your nipples. <laughs> uh, podcast. Which is also the only way it's appropriate to sing the national anthem. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's zero respect. This is like the opposite of Babe Station. <laughs> Trash Future, the podcast that is the opposite of Babe Station. <laughs> cool now. Okay, so you're in, you're in GMB. Loki comrade Susanna Reed is. And like, they turned to me with the first question, which I thought was bizarre because I was like, "It's his fucking policy," and they're just like, "Ash, why do you think the national anthem is dangerous?" And I was like, "Well, well." <laughs> I was was like, I don't think it's dangerous. And so I was trying to make the point that um, Romford, which is uh, his constituency, has got the second worst educational performance in London, that this is a really bizarre set of political priorities, da-da-da-da-da. And then, you know, coked-up walrus Piers Morgan, like, barrels in when I've said, like, this is an embarrassing policy. He's like, why is singing the national anthem embarrassing? And it just turned into, like, this eight-minute slanging match. About four minutes in, I just got really bored. And I was like, and they also tried to back me in a bit of a corner. They were like, do you have a problem with it? Because it's got a Christian God. And I'm like, you know, I mean, you can't tell this on a podcast, but I'm a brown woman. So I was like, okay, well, rather than like falling into that trap, I'm just going to be like, well, it's not like national anthem. Actually, it actually doesn't doesn't specify what denomination the God is. That's just assumed. It says God save the queen. But I mean, it could be like, you know, Cthulhu. She's the head of the Church of England fan. (laughs) This is the thing about white people, man, is that they're really belligerent about their history, but they actually know shit all about it. This is what the future is going to look like. We're, we're going to upload our loved ones onto like MacBooks, right? And then we're just going to be like, just dom them. <laughs> we're going to dom them while they're in the National Park program. <laughs> you were you were there, sort of there. They say it's a Christian song. And I got I got bored, and I was like, well, look, it's a bit shit. It doesn't even bang. And I would prefer Wiley's wearing my Rolex to be the national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> and no one can deny that it is a banger that it is representative of a particular mood and moment in UK pop grime. And then it just kind of all went to shit. And then people started chatting at me about what do I think about the monarchy? And so I said that Princess Michael of Kent could do one, which is weirdly something that I got away with. And uh, Andrew Rossendale turned to me and was like, is there any part of uh, British tradition that you don't want to denigrate? Um, And I was like, crisp sandwiches, because you don't find them in any other culture. And they're excellent. So I thought that that was kind of this morning's work done with. I went off to a meeting. And next thing I know, like the Daily Mail have got a hold of it. Like the sun are running with it. And like, you know, I was just like... Did you get the Breitbart treatment as well? um, 
I didn't check, but maybe. Okay. I don't know. There are just some corners of the internet that I don't look at. I don't yeah. look at the alt-right and I don't look at porn because I'm Muslim. So both of those things. Ash, what I want to know is how will your career recover from being rubbished by incredibly reputable paper, The Sun? <laughs> My family was actually incredibly disappointed in me that it hadn't happened earlier. Uh, they were just really like, what kind of communist are you? Um, a shit one, apparently. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's 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 the uh, it's the whole uh, you know it's the doctor thing. You come home with an A. There, why wasn't it an A plus? You get dragged in the sun. They were like, why have you been arrested? Yeah, they really are. Like, so what do you what do you mean you've not like been incarcerated in H block? Like, what are you doing with your life? God, what was like the standard profile of the? I was going to say, well, um, before we uh, before we sort of carry on too much further without just saying who we are and what we're doing. Oh, do we have um, to? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, do, we do kind of sort of have to a little bit. Right. Um, I will take this, this moment to, from here in cell block H, in the Muslim no-go zone of Tower Hamlets, uh, I will say welcome to Trash Future, the podcast about how the future, if we do not imp- implement fully automated luxury gay space communism, will be trash. I am joined by whom? From my right. Uh, my name's Ash Saka. I'm senior editor at Navarra Media. I'm a lecturer in film, graphic design and propaganda at the Sandberg and politics at Anglia Ruskin University. I'm also going to steal your man. It's your boy, the Caliph of Roman Road, uh, Hussein Kisvani. Um, I'm not allowed in airports or on planes. Um, not because of anything terrorist related, but just because... I keep insisting on bringing my whole anime collection on the plane. Hey, love, tired, love, love actually, wired, love Hina. <laughs> That's a joke for like 2% of our audience and one That's of my co-hosts. so niche. <laughs> hey, welcome to Trash Future. <laughs> welcome to Trash Future, a podcast that I'm continually surprised has listeners. Yeah. <laughs> and joining uh, us from the and, ball, from sunny America. And, yeah, and it's, and it's me, uh, Milo Edwards. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, is, I'm, I am the, I'm the Voldemort to Milo Yiannopoulos is gay fascist Harry Potter. Uh, I'm currently located in Utah, a state where the Mormons live, uh, who worship Cthulhu and drink beer, which has the strength of the piss of a sort of not even very drunk tramp. Coming at us from the land of Evan McMullen, the man who will save the Republican Party of the United States, is Milo Edwards. And I am uh, Riley. You can follow me on Twitter at Rala. I wouldn't recommend it. No, that's out of the way. On the subject of grime and hip-hop, did anyone see that tweet yesterday where some guy had like written an article for some American magazine being like, hip-hop is not even music, it's just noise. And then they found a picture of the author and he literally looked like William Gladstone. He was like this super old white dude with like massive white muttons. <laughs> <laughs> who time travel? Who time travel here from the 19th century via the early 1990s to get that take. Also, that's like an old take of the old takes. Like right now, guys with the mutton chops are like, Oh, well, it's not real rap, like, you know, public enemy. Like, that's what I thought old dudes were on. Like, this is, like, Crusades era. That's vintage. Like, it really is just um, quality, quality, (laughs) antique take. But wearing my Rolex is officially a banger. Um, I have spent a lot of time on rowing machines while it was playing. And I'll... <laughs> normal, normal urban person, Riley Quinn. <laughs> I spent a lot of time rowing to the song wearing my Rolex. I'm sure, I'm sure that's exactly what he had in mind. He was just like, this is the perfect, like, you know, 140 BPM, like, 
tempo for rowing. <laughs> sure, that's what Whitey was thinking. A real, a really... the, the core audience of like modern grime music are like students at Oxford uh, on rowing teams, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh my God, it is now. It, it truly is now. Afro Bashment Drill. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's 1.40 p.m. Time to listen to exactly one grime. So but between sort of your, your great passions uh, for astrology and communist literature, we also talk a great deal about grime. UK hip-hop did exist before grime, uh-huh. right? And there are also artists like Reg Preetu who sit right on that boundary. But grime's origins are not New York. That is not the sound. That is not the beats. Those are not the samples that are being used. It's jungle and it's ragga and it's football chanting, and that's all kind of coming through like underground garage as the garage scene is kind of starting to break up a bit. So um, Wiley, who... Um, I, so I signed an NDA, and now I don't have to adhere <laughs> by the NDA anymore because he kept tweeting about it, like, you know, thanks, IOCs, for writing my book. Um, I go through his autobiography, and it was just the most fun I've had in my life. Um, he came up through... The jungle scene and so that's why he's got that really distinctive like jungle inflected flow and then when he was making um nicole's groove uh champagne dance with pay as you go um that was all kind of like you know underground garage and then that developed into grime which uh took from that underground garage scene like that kind of like glitchiness like really like frenetic um electronic um angle and the mcing culture is completely different from US MCing culture. Mm-hmm. It's coming from really um, dancehall and ragga, like, you know, testing on the mic. It's not rapping mm-hmm. like the way that, you know, the US had shaped it. It's completely different. And this is why the guy with the mutton chops was so upset, because he went to see the jungle scene with his grandson and they didn't sing Bare Necessities once. It seems like grime has played kind of a big role politically in the la- in Britain in the last. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. Like the grime for Corbyn phenomenon is interesting because it's not something that was sought out or um, deliberately nurtured by the Corbyn team, and it's also not something that was necessarily that coordinated at first. Although mm. later on, a kind of infrastructure developed. It was finally you had a candidate who was able to address some material needs, which affected predominantly black working class young people um and there was a tremendous kind of um you know organic upswell in uh, political engagement and it was for me a turning point in how i viewed politics because i'd made the classic error of thinking that alienation was apathy whereas mm. people weren't apathetic they were just alienated from the politics of the day um and so when you look at you know the range of figures who came out like you know it wasn't just the kind of like self-appointed like um, custodians of the scene. It was also like up and coming new talent, AJ Tracy, novelist. Um, You know, Jamie was probably the least surprising of the bunch Mm -hmm. who came out for Corbyn. But um, it was, yeah, for me, it was like, it was a really interesting um, phenomenon, like culturally interesting moment. And also just sort of seeing... um, Corbyn's comms team being like, right, we've just got an endorsement from Stormzy. Like, what what do we do with this? <laughs> like, how do we um how do we message this? Like, you know, what this is not what we thought. Like, this is not the target demographic we had in mind, but cool. <laughs> you know, it's just like this gift that they didn't know what to do with. <laughs> 
So what what was it, you think, that um, has caused this musical movement to become sort of politicized to the left? It, it always was politicized to the left. Mm. So even before um, you had Grime for Corbyn, you had uh, outright and explicit criticism of successive Tory governments. I remember when uh, Lethal Bizzle came out and called David Cameron a donut. That was a very big <laughs> moment for me. Um, you know, Dizzy Rascal was going on with um, Paxo. And it's not about the music becoming politicized because it's always been political. You know, people live politicized lives. It's finally mm. you had a moment in mainstream politics which was speaking to that experience. Like for me, it's quite simple. And, and it sort of feels like it's the, it was the first time like it was taken seriously by a mainstream, right? Because as Ash was saying, like grime or like whatever you were like wanting to call it like in the early and mid 2000s it has like had a political slant and you know its origins come from like a specific place which lend itself to a type of like progressive you know type of like progressive politics but in the past kind of couple of years it feels as if like it's just been taken much more seriously and what i wanted to ask you as someone who doesn't really know a huge amount about you know the kind of internal workings of this is this kind of why it's been taken so seriously at this moment like is it because of like institutions kind of recognizing its monetary value um so i'm thinking about like stormzy here and just like how he like really rose up in a very quick amount of time um yeah, I mean, so one of the things that's interesting is that Stormzy is definitely the leading light of that second wave of grime because there were some real wilderness years. And what's mm. interesting about that is Wiley was literally pumping his own money into the scene, yeah. buying people studio time mm. during that time where grime was no longer lucrative or the thing that people wanted to listen to. And people were talking about, you know, grime is dead. But it wasn't Stormzy or even Skepta yeah. who brought that energy back. It was Meridian Dan. Meridian Dan, who I think has like twice, twice won Best Newcomer at the yeah. Mobos, right? The only man who's, you know, he's the oldest uh, <laughs> fresh face on the block. Um, and it was with German Whip. German Whip was, you know, the song which suddenly was just everywhere. Like, you know, I one extra I listened to that in Canada. <laughs> Oh my god! I can't. I can't even imagine. Like, I, I can't get my head around that. It's like so closely tied to a particular kind of like architecture. Um, but yeah, Meridian Dan was you know the guy who brought it back, and you know immediately after that you've got Jamie coming out with his 2015 album Integrity, and the whole point is that it's returning to Esky. It's going back to those you know 2003, 2004, mm. 2005 glitchy beats like that's not me is basically yeah. wiley's pies just like you know <clears throat> reconfigured yeah so i think that there was um an insistence on going back to the start and going back to a very uh self-reliant road ethos which also was a way of containing money within the scene and putting money back into the scene yeah. because you know when dizzy was making pop tunes and wiley was making pop tunes money was flooding in but it didn't necessarily stay smash there. mouth if you're listening to this pivot to grind. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way forward um but yeah just like a culture of uh, reinvestment and nurturing yeah. young talent because i was really thinking about like chip like chip well his mm. name's like chip right but like back in like the early mids he was like chipmunk and how he really got fucked over by like record labels because he was like doing pop songs for a really long time oopsie right? daisy yeah and there was another one as well which like i remembered on the way here but i can't i don't know what the title <laughs> is but like <clears throat> well after he quit alvin the money just kind of dried up 
fuck's sake. That's <laughs> we can't the even single have. whitest thing I've heard all week. We're keeping it back in now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're keeping that. Uh, there, was, there was this guy I knew who, because um, I went to like a suburban grammar school in Kent. So um, Where in Kent? Hmm? Where in Kent? In Dartford. Do you know it? I'm familiar with the concept. <laughs> I, I, have, I have heard of the game of darts. I have driven a Ford. It's got a lovely tunnel, got a lovely bridge. And only, I'm, I'm assuming only like maybe 35% of its residents are like possibly members of like the English Defence League. Uh, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, you know, fact check me on that. Um, you know, and I remember this guy like said that his favorite rapper was like the rapper from Lincoln Park. <laughs> He just reminded me of like one mile. <laughs> I'm actually having trouble reacting to that. Um, so that was like the extent of like, well, you know, people did listen. Like there were some kids who like listened to grime when I was like when I when I was over there. They listened to like all the kind of old like boy better know stuff, mm. um, which is really cool. And they um, there was a couple of other things too. Uh, Actually, do you want to know something really sick? Of course I do. So, um, Make this show exciting, please. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, when Skepta started out, he was first a DJ, and he yeah. didn't MC until basically Wiley got him to MC, and Jamie yeah. was the first one to start MCing. Yeah. Um, and for me, when Jamie and Skepta first started coming out, I was still at school. Yeah. Um, you know, I was like listening to Grime on the back of the bus, braces on wondering why boys didn't like me um and then when grime came to north london and it felt like wow it's now in north london that was like a really big fucking deal yeah and the summer just gone like and i just completely lost my shit like got to meet uh jamie skepta and their sister julie and also their parents yeah their dad is like this hardcore pan-africanist like super rad politically astute like you know, so there's this whole um, kind of, I don't know, there's this like kind of, I don't know how you'd explain it, like this undercurrent of, a, you know, when we're talking about like, you know, the politicization of crime and I'm saying, well, there's something that's always been there, is that through the experience of migration and how stories are told um, in a diaspora context, like across generations, there's something that's like intact um, that, is passed down and I think that it was a real emphasis on like self-worth on carrying yourself being proud sounding yeah. tall being able to um adapt to your circumstances but not be absorbed by them and you can see that in Skepta you can definitely see that in Jamie and Julie in three very different ways yeah. um what's interesting about um Wiley is like throughout the book I wasn't asking him like what do you think about politics because that's a really boring question but automatically he was connecting his own experience, his sense of rootlessness to like yeah. black diaspora and forced displacement yeah. and, you know, um, you know, economic dispossession and political disenfranchisement, yeah. you know, th- so that understanding and that black radical consciousness is something that's there, like in the art mm. and it's really shaped how it's developed. I'm just, yeah, I get so excited by that. Would you, okay, because one thing I sort of, this one I sort of kind of seized on here is you sort of talk quite a bit about like reinvestment, how sort of a, this, that sort of money sort of stays in these scenes or sort of a sense of mutuality. Do you think that, do you think that that sort of, um, I guess that, that, that sense of connection with, with one another, you know, is kind of based on almost this sort of solidarity you seem to be describing? Um, I'm not sure if I'd go as far as to say solidarity. There's certain affection. There's certainly affection. There's definitely loyalty. 
Um, but there's still competition. There's still beef. There's still, um, you know, like pea money dot rotten. Um, well, maybe the dis- the distinction would be, I suppose, the distinction I'm trying to draw is between um, what what you're describing, uh, which is which just feels sort of even if I'm not saying it's it's sort of always lovely all the time. I mean, you were telling us earlier about how on this very road, you know, um, Dizzy was stabbed. No, he wasn't stabbed no. on this road. No, he was stabbed in Ayanapa, then came back to this road. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, but rather that it's if nothing else, it seems like it's it has sort of it, it seems that certain elements of it have escaped the logic of kind of endless alienation. But you know what? I think what it is is more that everyone learned Dizzy's lesson, which is you can't have a scene make you who you are, take the money and run, expect to come back and still be loved. Um, and I think the turning point for him really was when he was stabbed in Napa. And it's something which when you watch interviews with him with like DJ Vlad or whatever, there's this... Um, cautiousness and this guardedness which i don't think has ever left him Mm. and you know people know him as the guy who was like you know the minute he got a whiff of like calvin harris money like you know took it with both hands and ran with it and now when he's come back and it doesn't matter that you know rasket is a very very good album it's never gonna have that same hold over people the way you know boy in the corner did because you know, really after Maths in English, he booted. He didn't want to be part of this environment or architecture or scene anymore. And it's what's interesting is that he never... I mean, he went to Miami. Um, he's now, like, based in Kent. And even though Wiley lives in... I know where his house is. It's like a proper, like, nice house in Chislehurst, which is, like, one of the leafiest, whitest areas you, of are we Are we about to straight-up dox Dizzy on this show? Um, we're not going to dox him completely. Because <laughs> he will still fuck you up. He boxes. Well, Hussein, wa- Hussein watches anime and trains that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've spent a long time learning the blockchain, so come There is me. actually, like, a secret grime history of Kent. Can you tell me more about that? Um, so Wiley's the, uncle, Junior, yeah. who's his mom's younger brother, was murdered, not actually that far away from here um, in Bow. And that kind of precipitated a family breakdown. Yeah. So Wiley and his sister, Jenea, who is just the most incredible woman I've met in my life, uh, moved with their mom to their nan's house in Gillingham. And he fucking hated it there. So this is all in the book. I'm not spinning Don't blame him. Um, he hated it there. He was just like, everyone's racist. It's slow. I just don't feel like I'm around my people. I miss my dad, who's still in East London. And about that experience, he writes the song, Nan, I Am London. Yeah. Right? Like, it's about this whole, like, sense of displacement. But when he was living in Gillingham, um, one, he was just like, it was so fucked up. Like, even the other ethnic minorities there were racist. And I was like, what was going on? Yeah, yeah, no, that's still... That hasn't changed. And he liked to play some football for like Gillingham FC <laughs> and felt furious that it wasn't as good as a London team. Yeah. Um, I, he's, he's probably not going to listen to the show, but I went to school with the son of the manager of Gillingham FC. Um, so that's my grime connection. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a business networking podcast. <laughs> well look i'm i'm learning from the jay shetty mindset which is don't sleep and connect with everyone well, even if they ask why are you in my house oh my god oh my god oh my god you know what oh, yeah. i know his sister from school there you go ash you are now also connected <laughs> <laughs> you've got a bright future because and we also we always used to because his, you know surname shetty we used to be like um <laughs> go on then go and then draw for the shetty make your belly look like a bowl of spaghetti like at her 
And he went to the school next door, if I recall correctly. Well, isn't that a weird coincidence? If anyone else wants to join the Trash Future Leadership Scheme, <laughs> uh, please DM me. Oh uh, my god, I'm, I am so happy. <laughs> no, well, he. Um, See, it's true. Everyone in North London knows each other, right? It's like he was also the only person who liked my joke tweet about going to learn like business mindset from Jay Shetty because I found this building called Media Monks and took a picture of it, uh, which just shows what he uses his like important business time to do. It's like kind of like um, the offspring of like Narendra Modi's id. Do you know what I mean? Like super neoliberal, like super turbocharged neoliberalism, like mm. also kind of combined with like Hindutva. It's politically interesting, if also a bit frightening. I mean, his, I mean Harrow's like really hot for Modi, right? He's, always, he's, like his, he's from Harrow. <laughs> Well, like he leaves, like live there for a bit. They're like they're really hot for me. Last last time I went, there were like posters and shit of him, like on the high street. Because I'm an idiot and American, and um, you know, are you American? You're Canadian. I'm Canadian. I forget. Sometimes. Even he admits that there's no fucking difference. Yeah, I'm a Canadian as well. Like we both have <laughs> Canadian passports, right? So, so I, I sort of I show my own ass, sort of on my on my sort of ignorance of the subject, despite interest. Um, and as it seems as though it's just, it's, I, I'd never really grasped kind of just how different it was, uh, grime versus American hip hop. It's beyond stylistic choices. I mean, for me, the key difference here is that you're looking at two different histories of coloniality, right? So hip hop is the result of an internally colonized black population, which has been there from America's very conception as, you know, a nation state or a set of states. Whereas Grime, you are locating it in a post-Windrush story of migration. And you hear that in the music. I was chatting to a friend of mine, uh, Kojo Karam, an uh, amazing academic based at the University of Essex. One of the things we were talking about is that it occupies a very subversive relationship to Englishness. And I think that's partly because of its um, birthplace in East London, which is like so English, so Cockney. Like, you know, to be truly a Londoner, you have to be born within hearing distance of Bose Bells, well, so was Grime. And it's always had that kind of, um, you know, use of Cockney rhyming slang, um, football chanting, stuff like that. It's always inflected it. And when you look at this new generation, which is contained within Grime as a scene, but not the stylistic requirements of Grime as a genre, Afro-bashment, I think that's really interesting in terms of telling the story of uh, not just black anymore, but, you know, black, North African, Asian being in this country is that it's almost like what Glissant says in Poetics of Relation of culture that is formed at the periphery, at the margins. And you have this wonderful hybrid, Afro-Bashment, which is this, you know, um, melding of two uh, musical traditions, right? Afrobeat and Bashment. And I'm really interested to see where it goes from there. And I think that's the difference between Grime the first time around and Grime the second time around. So Grime the second time around is a cradle for multiple genres. It truly is a scene and a culture industry in its own right now. And thinking about what the third wave might look like, like who knows, but it's going to be really fucking exciting. Any uh, any recommendations for a song to put on the outro? Um, at the moment, I keep bumping NSG Yo Darling. Okay, 
Well, we will be right back with you uh, for the second half in just a moment. So, are we allowed to do that? Yo, darling, wake up early in the morning. We don't wait with no talking. Your body die should be sorting. She came out, let me take you for a spin. Destination is the closest place we can buy that drink. Jade is all share, but to sing few sits now. I'm picturing the craziest thing. I'm coming, saying, yeah, say nothing. My shit rise up, I face my belly button. We're going to get Transformers for Corbin. <laughs> I've, I've only seen the ones with Shia LaBeouf in them. Um, because of my role that I will watch any film with Shia LaBeouf. Hold on. I've been saying his name wrong all this time. How have you been saying it? Like Shia. Like, Shia. <laughs> like Shia. the denomination of Islam. Shia, Shia, Shia LaBeouf. That's the, that's the conspiracy right there. If that could be out because it's like a Hebrew name, right? So I don't. But the thing is, I've actually noticed in a lot of his interviews that he changes the pronunciation. Mm. And I don't know whether he does it on pur- whether he did it on purpose. So, like, I mean, I want to ask this because there's like two Muslims on the left, and you're the other one. <laughs> Whoa, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a few more, but let's. I know. Okay, I mean, like, say for argument's sake, for the sake for the sake of humor, for the sake of humor, <laughs> do you find it difficult when you come up against like fucking? You know, and they always quote the same line from Marx, and it's a misapprehension of what Marx meant anyway. Yeah. Is explaining the confluence between faith and politics, or do you just say that like, I can't be fucked with this? To be honest, like I haven't really heard it. I haven't really kind of been confronted with it in any like sort of significant way. And partially that's because I think like my activity in like leftist politics kind of is this show. Um, which, as you know from being here for about an hour, is is, is really just about like body fluids. I mean, ideologically, uh, it's a complete wasteland. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's it has no value whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, uh, investors, if you're listening, much like your Bitcoin will soon. Um, I mean, it's really just woke bourgeois decadence. I think I come from this weird space where, like, I'm part of a immigrant community that sort of did like quite well. So, um, like the Gujarati, the Gujarati, like Indian community who are famously like famously targets for like Tory politics. But also famously Um, Islamophobic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like also coming from like a back, like a Shia background as well. Like you can really, you really see that sort of weaponized, right? So you really see the anti-Sunni stuff weaponized. Um, and what I'm really fascinated by and like part of like what my book is really looking at is how like class sort of changes the way that you see your religious identity as well. Um, you know, so coming from like, you know, bourgeois Shia communities and like, well, in my case, like South London, but the majority of them live in North London, you know, a lot of the kind of anti-Sunni stuff is also can also be um, projected as being like, you know, attacks on kind of poor Bengalis living in like East London or more often than not like Pakistanis right so like mm. this the line that you some you you hear like more often than like I would like to hear it is that oh you know these Pakistanis are the ones that are giving Muslims bad names right they're the ones who are going to go join ISIS and everything um we're the good guys because like we protect Christians and you know all that stuff like that stuff has actually been said in the mosque that like my family attend um so I feel like that's the more problematic element of kind of my religious identity when in its confluence of politics. But I understand that that's like a very minor, like... I don't thing. think it's minor at all. I think like... I'm, sorry, I'm just... Um, this is the smartest our show has 
ever been. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in asking these questions because I'm navigating these spaces and trying to think about how yeah. I make this set, this particular subject position legible to other people and yeah. to get people um, to engage with its uh, political content and not just sort of read or project political, yeah, yeah. political content onto it. So, you know, I, my family's Bengali uh, and we're kind of from like this triangle, including like Chittagong. Yeah. Dhaka and Kolkata. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's kind of partitioned, fucked shit up, and then you know, mm-hmm. came here and all the rest of it. And um, what's really striking is like that, you know, very real antagonism between Bengal and Pakistan. Yeah. There was a whole big brouhaha in 1971. Not sure if uh, you've heard about it. <laughs> um, is how quickly homogenized we are in this country, not because of any uh, sense of political or ideological affinity, but purely because of class status and yeah. um, a kind of, you know, temporal confluence in terms of waves of migration. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I find really uh, unse- unsettling is um, how uncritical people are when engaging with that class content, right? So they look at working yeah. class Pakistanis and Bangladeshis in particular and go, oh, you're just backwards. Yeah, yeah. And that's also inflected by Islamophobia. It's also inflected yeah. by like a particular kind of like imperialist feminism. Yeah. Uh, I found it just like such a complete like fraff mm. to even begin to unpack. And yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, I find it difficult like trying to unpack this and like trying to like make it coherent for what is largely going to be like, you know, a white, you know, middle, like upper middle class, like audience. But I think one of the things that you were kind of saying, but I've like sort of picked up on a lot is how those like internalized, like those demeaning terms that like can become really internalized. So like the terms like backwards, um, how that actually affects like migrant communities through a class structure, I think is like really fascinating because then like even, you know, again, so back in my case, like, you know, you know, my Muslim kind of family will use the term backward to differentiate themselves from like the other ones, right? The other ones being like this very universal service. Like, oh, you know, because we, you know, we don't wear headscarves and stuff. So we're mm. kind of progressive and we're open. And it's like, no, you guys have like, have like the same sort of problematic. And it's even internal, like, right? So like, you know. You just want to hide it in like suburban know, houses and stuff. Because especially like my family from like Dhaka and Kolkata, they're like, oh, well, you know, we're not Sileti. And like, there are all the, you know, it's these kind of quite they might seem to an external gaze yeah. like niche antagonisms, but they're not. It's like encoding like class, like sometimes caste uh, and also ethnic, ethno-linguistic conflicts yeah. um, as well. Uh, and it's just Im- impossible to speak with that level of specificity sometimes. And you, yeah. want, you wonder how to do it or if it's possible yeah. to do it. I mean, it. there's a lot of like background, a lot of like the unpacking that, as you mentioned, like needs to be done before you can even have those conversations. Um, and like, I guess in like, general marxist theory but like just general like leftist discourse i find that like faith in general is not really talked about a huge amount so like even or it's disparaging yeah um 
and because like we have that absence absence of conversation like even the first principles are absent so like how do you take a conversation but it's really really complicated that encompasses everything from like class consciousness to intersectionality um to like you know discourses around sexuality like how do you begin that if you don't even know where your origin point is i mean i did this interview with nick cohen this week about friend of the show oh my god about like you know um Islam, progressive politics, feminism, the left. Because you Nick Cohen unfollowed me on Twitter. I just want to like make before we continue. Like he he was following me for ages, and then he unfollowed me, and I fo- only found out two weeks ago. And I'm really mad, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cohen, I challenge you to a duel. <laughs> That's loyalty. Body well, pillows yeah. at dawn. <laughs> But, but, but the jewels we engage in on Trash Feature are all like Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, so I did this interview and it, in some ways it was um, it was exactly what I expected it would be because uh, he's making this documentary and it's kind of uh, consolidating his two favourite things, which is hating on Islam and hating on Corbyn. So oh, really? What, so okay. what he's trying to do is argue that uh, liberal Muslims feel betrayed by Corbyn because... I didn't really understand. And so yeah. I was like, I, I don't think that's the case. Like, I think that, you know, most Muslims in this country feel that, like, you know, his critical stance on foreign policy really speaks to them. Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. Um, and then I realized that he kept including me in this, like, bracket of liberal Muslim. Like, you know, liberal Muslim, liberal Muslim, wear, liberal Muslim. Because you don't wear a hijab. And then I had to be like, bro, you know I'm not a liberal. I'm a fucking communist. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, just, he went slack, Jordan. He was like, but how can you be a communist and... Um, a Muslim at the same time doesn't yeah. Mark say religion is the opiate of the people and I was like okay yeah. now I'm in a weird position where you who have abandoned the left and all premise like all illusions of a Marxist analysis now quoting Marx back at me yeah. um, it's bizarre it's also like such a dumb kind of like thing that you kind of say in your GCSE year when you like read Christopher Hitchens once. Oh my God. And also they think that opiate of the people just means like it's a narcotic of the people. No, it's a painkiller. That's the fucking point. It's yeah. a comfort. That's like, why he used the word opiate. And I was going to say that like that sort of feeds into, so you did this thread, was it this week? About the Darren Osborne case mm. um, and how like Islamophobia and anti-Corbyn sentiment are like sort of hand in hand. Mm. And no one's really, and I thought that was a really, really good thread because it was something that I'd been thinking about for a while and I wasn't necessarily sure how to articulate it. Um, so, I mean, Arun Kanani is excellent yeah. on this in uh, The Muslims Are Coming, which is which as a book to understand Islamophobia is the one which I keep returning to. And what it's looking at is Islamophobia as a way of containing dissent. So you don't have to be Muslim to be racialized as Muslim and therefore mm. subject to a certain form of state violence. The example I always use is uh, Jean-Charles de Menezes, right? He was murdered because he looked Muslim enough, and that's it. And when you come to, um, you know, the role of, in particular, the prevent agenda in terms of policing dissent around foreign policy, even policing the study of security studies, if you're Muslim, um, and that goes very, you know, quite neatly with this um, wider project to discredit left politics, whether mm. those politics are a leftist critique of political economy or a leftist critique of foreign policy. So you have this kind of, you know, triangle going on where Corbyn represents two of those uh, nodes. And the third one is just the very presence of Muslims within his constituency. Um, Finsbury Park Mosque, which was, which as long as I've known it, has been demonized as being particularly illiberal. And these three things work together perfectly and had a murderous outcome. You see all that stuff in The Spectator, like during the Corbyn run, but also just like the early years when... I guess they were sort of convinced that Corbyn was going to like be pushed out. 
um, by Liz, uh, Liz Kendall in a tank. I uh, remember all that. Four <laughs> percent of the vote. Oh my god. Those are the good days, weren't they? Well, um, it's, it's, speaking of the Spectator, there's one actually because I, I I sort of remember from this. You have I think it was your th- yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I love the Spectator because every time Brendan O'Neill writes not in Spiked, I need to catch his pieces in the Spectator. <laughs> but no, um, as um, is that you know, we we get this narrative also where sort of after Darren Osborne, the far right papers all say we have no idea how this happened, and it's like, well, I've got a hypothesis. But also, they do something that's very very snaky, um, and. This, so when I got uh, slated by the Daily Mail recently, and this also happened to um, like three of my best friends this week as well, like, you know, Pretty Gang is the squad that just keeps pissing off the Daily Mail, like rep hard, is that they republish a ton of the racist tweets that you get, like approvingly. As, and as, you know, they, they've got enough plausible deniability of like, well, we're covering the controversy, but they're republishing all those tweets being like you know go home you don't you like those he can't you know um and the weird thing is that those were some of the least racist things in that edition of the daily mail i I mean they often they decide like people on twitter were outraged by (laughs) ash sarka's statements on why um this so-called grime music uh should replace our national anthem uh Various men whose avatars are sort of like white pointy sheet hats, which I can only assume means that they're druids. <laughs> you know, in, in like American far-right stuff, like all the like racist abbeys are anime, but in the British far-right space, like they're all like really weird things. They're either like dogs or they're like bits of tablecloth. They're also sort of 50-year-old. Haram though, isn't yeah. it? Hmm? It's haram. Yeah, so like, well... Announcing themselves on one side of the godly divide. I remember, like, this one guy, like, he um, he was outraged by this piece I wrote for Vice about all the shit you have to deal with as a Muslim during Christmas. Um, and it was all just, like, really dumb stuff. It was just, like, you know, your idiot, like, religious cousin. And, oh, I remember this yeah. guy. I just, every time was he, he tweeted, I, um, I just responded by telling him I found a picture of him online and just putting in a picture of Dan Ninen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, there was, there was this other guy. There was this other guy who, like, and his avi was, like, of a gammon ham. Uh-huh. Um, it's like racists have started embodying the impression that we do of them behind their backs. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you just give them so, you know, it's like we, they're not even trying to, like, not yeah. be owned. Like, it's, you know. it's, it's their, their bane, right? It's like, it's like, I was born as a half. <laughs> Only Milo gets to do that impression, so. But, okay, but then, like, so. I was born in the racism, nurtured by it. Literal, <laughs> literally, yes, though. Just like, I was just like, yeah, as a, as a critique of, like, you know, Britishness, you are correct. But, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, maybe... This is where I also then think about like, well, what is the um, political efficacy of irony? Because I'm, this is something which I kind of come back to, which is the performance of antagonism, right, on Twitter. So it's like, oh, they're not even trying not to be owned. But it's yeah. like, okay, well, I might, you know, dunk on a racist five times a day. but As the government recommends. As the government recommends. Um, as Mufti Menk would recommend. <laughs> um, Mufti Menk famously did say, uh, the dunk on, yeah. No, I've lost it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you used up all your brain <laughs> on that, like, again, very uncharacteristically clever conversation you know, earlier. 2.5% of your income must go on dunking on racists. <laughs> uh, I can't remember which pillar that is, but it's definitely <laughs> one of them. And, and one of the things is that, does this... Is this politically effective or is it even emotionally effective, right? As a form of catharsis 
Or is this a way of evading a more concrete antagonism? Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been thinking about this a bit. Because um, as, as, as we said, like off, off stuff, like just a year ago, like I think my posts were like sort of sincere um, in terms of like whenever something racist would happen, then like you'd want to like fight back and you'd want to, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily like, ex- let's say explain to the racist, but to kind of try to rubbish their ideas. And I always sort of found it like quite exhausting in the end, right? Um, and it felt as if it was like going nowhere. So for me, like, as on a personal level, like, dumb, ironic jokes about body fluids is not only a way to kind of, like, stop people from kind of feeling powerful, like, oh, they've got, you know, they've really got under your skin and stuff. And that's what, like, a lot of these, like, fucking gammon hammer avies, like, want, right? They want to get under your skin. They want to make you really angry. And on the other hand, like, and we've kind of sort of done this before, you know, with, like, the Trash Future pylons and stuff, um, not a sex move. Uh, <laughs> where you know, I wouldn't even know where to begin with. <laughs> no, it's, it's specifically not. It's a not sex move. Yeah. It's a move to keep yourself from having sex. We're an anti-sex podcast. Good. So I normally um, like just talk about the Grindreaser, but you know. <laughs> um, but like, we, you know, on you know, whenever you've got like some guy who's trying to like you know get under your skin, and what you end up doing is like showing them for like how like ridiculous they are. So like this week we had a guy who like got mad at something we said about Churchill and then he ended up going on this massive rant about like computers and like the in like the birth of the internet and stuff like that. It was this really bizarre rant which just showed him up to be like ridiculous. Um being mad online is the opiate of the masses. <laughs> um so like on a very personal level I feel that it works, but then I, I don't know like how that affects like overall discourse, how that affects like resistance, especially because so much of resistance and so much of like engaging in like the so-called culture wars happens on social media platforms. I mean, I've been thinking um, a lot about this. I'm so sorry. I realize that sincerity isn't the brand here, but I'm a very deeply sincere person. And so I just can't escape. <laughs> You're it making the show better. Don't worry. <laughs> um, like, I'm really, really. Our last show was like all about piss. So. I'm so. The one that we did with uh, Mag, Maggie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like 80% of that was pissed. I'm so, so uncomfortable about having to have a physical form. So if we can just avoid that. That'd be great. <laughs> um, we can all be like Milo and just be in the ball. I communing. mean, I'm just like, I'm like, that's so great. That's like really speaking to this, um, you know, deeply neurotic and repressed um, nun that lives inside of me. It's like, you know, techno nun. Um but like, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this and I, I really do agree with you that like that sincere engagement is so exhausting. And, you know, Bell Hooks talks about racism as being this, you know, there's always one more thing. They say you've got no history. So you spend 20 years showing that you do. And then it's another thing. That's another thing, which like you just say, OK, racism primarily in many ways operates through just longing you out, just like yeah. just being like longers. And then there's, well, how do you build resistance? And, you know, you're talking about like cultural wars playing out online. And this is something which I think those of us on the left do have to take responsibility for is that we're very good at creating moments and flashpoints. We're terrible at building movements. And I wonder if that's because there's an instantaneous gratification to these conflicts and then they melt away, right? You're not generally having a constructive set of antagonisms with the same person which both of you grow. Mm. Neither are you building a community which you are seeing around you in your neighborhood or you're, you know, you're seeing in your workplace. Mm. I think that speaks to not just um, 
technology, the role of technology, the atomizing effects of technology, I think it speaks to, I mean, we were talking about this, I think, before we went live, something about the postmodern condition where we believe that naming anything is possible. All manner of conversation is possible. But discourse, as the shaper of our realities, we do not believe. We do not believe it's possible to politically change uh the conditions that we inhabit. Yeah. But this is this is something we talked about earlier that you mentioned was sort of off the back of some research at the NEF, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, this, um, I'd, I'd love to sort of go into this a little more. Cool. So th- this is... The Let's th- just ste- steer into this sincerity. <laughs> just, um, so uh, it was a, a report called Framing the Economy. It was conducted over two years by the New Economics Foundation, and it was conducted in... Uh, one, two, three, four primary stages. And basically it was trying to get to grips with how do people understand the economy and how do they feel about the economy? And rather than trying to, you know, normally bits of research try and draw out antagonisms and difference, it was trying to draw out what some common threads were. So through uh, two hours of interview with 40 participants initially, they drew out some common threads, which is that people think the economy is rigged it's unequal but they're fatalistic it can't change uh they think about the economy as like a container right so as boundaries are fixed things go out things go at the bottom people are um you know takers or they're you know givers so there's a kind of like underlying fascism almost to it like you know producers and eaters um and they have a sense of you know it's being controlled by someone it's almost like an illuminati sense of conspiracy and when but also there's this cognitive black hole, right? Where people are just like, well, how does the economy work? And it's like, uh, and then they would maybe extrapolate from a couple of phrases that felt familiar. And then it was focus grouped and, you know, it was talked about in more depth. And then through this research, they tried to come up with, well, what are two framings that can help people change their minds and feel a sense of control over what they're talking about? And there were two main narratives that they found effective. One was people versus the elites, And the metaphor that really works and stuck with people, even though I think it's a terrible fucking metaphor, but it just (laughs) worked, was uh, the idea of a computer program. So the economy has been programmed one way, it can be reprogrammed another way. Uh, And so what you're saying is that when this is the kind of metaphor that could, that allows people to understand uh, the economy and could potentially change their minds? Yes. And it would change their minds about how it could work. Because it was like, well, you know, one group of people have got the password and we're locked out of it, but that can change. So it insists... Wait, so everyone is a gamer essentially essentially uh, in late capitalism we are all gamers and then the second framing was uh called like the- ready player one yeah, we're gonna have to review that shit yeah but <laughs> what is what, what was the second and the way? second framing is uh, the meeting our needs narratives that the economy is no longer meeting our needs the way it ought to be and mm. the metaphor that people really liked for that was train tracks right but laying down train tracks and it gets you somewhere and that destination can be shared or it needs to be more pluralistic or whatever so what was interesting about this, and, you know, NEF is essentially a liberal uh, organization. So when it talks about these things, they are also, to a certain extent, presented as uh, non-ideological or apolitical, which is kind of strange when you're thinking explicitly about politics and ideology. Um, but I thought, you know, when we're having these conversations about engagement, when we're thinking about emotional work, when we're thinking about how do you achieve change um through trying to construct a sense of social majority i came out of this 
meeting. You know, I'd missed watching Spurs wallop Man United to be at this, like, you know, research um, feedback. And I was like, wow, hang on, it is possible. We can message in a way that's ultimately productive. And, you know, we can think about conversations as something which we build on. It's not just like a moment of conflict and then you move on. Well, this is, I think, all sort of goes back to something you were saying earlier about sort of questioning the value of, if you like, dunking on fascists, uh, which is very fun. But, and I think this, I think sort of taking, taking these two things together, I think gives a sense or at least of, of what I consider to be sort of a valuable way of communicating, which is that you, ha- you have to understand that the fascists, as you say, will always have the one more thing. So they're going to not be easy to convince, but you can excite people by, and you can, you can excite people by giving them these, these notions of the, of the, the computer program and the train track. And you can also even use the kind of, you can't convince the fascists, but you can beat them at Yu-Gi-Oh. The, you can use, <laughs> you can use this kind of shared, almost like this shared fun language um, that you get through sort of fun irony posting and dunking on fascists and stupid podcasts like this to kind of create almost a sense of, I think it's a sense of fun, almost like a fun groupness. And yeah, then, and, and I, th- I think group identity yeah. fun is really important. Like, you know, um, Bifo, right? Mm. Bifo in all of his works on like, you know, kind of Italian autonomism is using words like fun, is using words like desire, is, you know, intensely playful in his, polit- in his political articulations, which you wouldn't guess from how I'm describing it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's got a tremendous sense of fun. And I do think that that kind of energy needs to come back. But I think one of the things that's worth pointing out is a culture war can only benefit the right. And that's what they want because they have lost what was once a solid ideological heart of conservatism that's completely had um, the soul and the energy ripped out of it. We've won every economic argument. The only hope that they've got now is opening up a cultural front Mm. to play on deeply embedded senses of, you know, of racial superiority, nationalism, white aggrievement, these battles which don't have an end because actually there is an end in sight for neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I think we we sort of anytime you, you end up sort of interacting with these people online and you sort of point out that they've said something racist, they say, oh, you're just shouting me down as racist because you disagree with what I say. Isn't whiteness and aggrievement synonymous? I think isn't the issue more like whiteness being repackaged? So like in in the sense that like all the arguments and all the principles and stuff are still there and I don't think it's really ever going to go away. Like the things that we hear about, you know... um, you know, whites being the most persecuted people in like London and like, you know, all this like, all this like propaganda bullshit. I like, mean, as hard is... as we try, we've still not gotten that far. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still able to walk through the Caliphate of Tower Hamlets freely for now. <laughs> you haven't left. <laughs> bear, bear in mind that like the Gucci gang is out there. Bear in mind there's no one left in this office and you're currently outnumbered, mate. Oh so. shit. <laughs> Um, Milo, help. But no, like the things that I, the things that I sort of worry about when it comes to building like a movement like this is the fact that like whiteness to a certain extent has been like sort of repackaged for an audience who may not necessarily like have gravitated to like the old arguments. But if you look at like, you know, YouTube shows, for example, by 
I, I don't know what they're called, but like, I guess the one that we've spoken about on the show is like Dave Rubin, right? Mm. Um, and the Rubin Report and how he's quite shamelessly brought in people who have like literally kind of said that eugenics isn't bad and actually- They have be... brought back scientific racism. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And like, you know, he's got all the aesthetics of like a, like a downtown LA studio and like, you know, he's a former Hollywood guy. So like he knows how to play this game. Well, Gavin McInnes is a former Vice guy. Like it's all, it's, it's, there's, there's a sense of hipsterism I mean, and turning I mean, towards I mean, Gavin, this. Like, Gavin Finally like, a high profile phrenologist. <laughs> I mean I mean Gavin McInnes, I don't really see I don't I don't see Gavin as like a huge threat in the sense that like he's just I in my opinion like he's too stupid to really like he's, um, he's, he's too he's too like cuffed up to yeah. like think strategically. I've been on that level of wave too. Gavin, I know. <laughs> like, uh, um but like people like Dave Rubin, like for all their like idiotic like lack of intellect, sort of know how to package things like that. To the point where like you'll have people who kind of had the same sort of aggrievements as like many on the left in terms of like, you know, inequality and not being able to kind of like afford houses or being able to like afford families and stuff. And I feel like the choices that they can make, it's very, it's much easier for them to like gravitate to the right. And we've, we've spoken about this on previous shows, like the whole Jordan Peterson thing, right? Like he's written a book which basically like says nothing, but it's really easy to kind of gravitate to that rather than kind of real material solutions. But that's why I've changed tack in in particular in the last year in terms of how i talk about racism because before i was coming from this kind of you know decolonize everything yeah angle and i still deeply um hold to that critique but in terms of political utility yeah i've changed how i frame things yeah. because that culture war i know is the only thing they've got left so now when i talk about racism yeah i don't talk about Feelings. I don't talk about dispositions. I don't talk about sentiments. I don't talk about even unconscious bias. Would you call yourself the Ben Shapiro of the left? <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> I love. I love having someone who, like, on this show, who, whose brain isn't like complete, <laughs> completely her, mush. That's, your brain is so good. There's just so much of it. Can we like mold it? <laughs> can I measure? Can I measure your skull before you leave? Like the all office? of our brains have been totally broken by the internet, but. So we know you're, you're not doing, you're not, you're not, you've abandoned the old strategies. What's the new yeah, one? Yeah, the inside what? of my head is like a vodka watermelon. Um, what I try and do is talk about money. I talk about employment. I talk about average household assets. I talk about wage gaps. And then what I do is I say, your agreements about what you think the problem of racist discourse is, isn't a problem of anti-racism. It's a problem of state-sponsored multiculturalism post Scarman report which said that the only justice could be representative rather than redistributive justice that's something which fucked the anti-racist movement in this country it fucked um black and asian trade union organizing and it also fucked not the white working class which isn't actually a distinct demographic but white working class people over because then it meant that multiculturalism in which class is just a set of accents habits um, you know, signifiers of authenticity rather than, you know, material mm. conditions is that it fucks white working class people because they could only articulate a need for justice through the lens of state-sponsored state multiculturalism. Yeah. That's my tactic. Well, it's, I think this is where we, we kind of get back to the, the Jay Shetty thing and the sort of, um, the role, what well, we always, all roads lead to Jay Shetty. Because he got up at 4 a.m. and built them himself. You can see that. You can see that be that uh, that attitude being carried out in out of how he talks. Because he is the ultimate sort of 
is the ultimate sort of multi argument for their multicultural representation as justice, which is work, which is it's all you, it's all about you. You have this, you have no excuses. Wake up early there was this and really work very great, hard, there was and this you re- could be a success. There was this guy on Twitter who actually did a really good thread about this. So he he grew up in like Newham, and he went to a school um, in like you know one of the poorer districts of East London. Um, and he was kind of saying that like every few months the school would like wheel in like some kind of like entrepreneur guy to like give inspirational talks and like how this is becoming like this really widespread thing in a lot of kind of, you know, inner city schools, right? Because you've got young people who are really into, you know, I guess it's like, you know, YouTube, Instagram, mm. influencer well, it's, generation. It's, it's, you could just call it like formless, directionless, yeah. contentless success. And, and they all like sort of say the same thing, which is like, oh, if you just like, you know, buckle down, don't go, don't, you know, don't go out clubbing, don't go out like drinking with your mates. Um, Focus all your energies into suing the NHS. <laughs> you know, then you can like, then you two can like start your own like businesses and stuff like that. And you can like make the material, you know, you can kind of make it so your mom doesn't have to like work in the hospital. Like they tap into very real things, but their solutions are very like limp and they're very, I guess, superficial. And they feed into like, I think Jay Shetty like packages it really well. Oh, yeah, like the migrant work ethic yeah. is completely coterminous within the logic of neoliberalism. Shame yeah. is a dying ideology, lads, but you know. <laughs> Um, the best way out of poverty is to make fun and vibrant shirts that are perfect for the boardroom or the yacht (laughs) (laughs) do do, do, do you know do you know who White do you know who White Coke is Mm? the Coke the the Coke brothers billionaire son large son (laughs) who took his billions to make a gaudy shirt company but that, like, where it's just the shirts just have one of which literally has money bags. It's just drawings of money, but they're shirts for fat guys. You know, what? I mean, I'm not sure if the podcast is the best place for this. I am looking for a rich, stupid man with low self esteem. <laughs> I'm sure we could. I'm sure we have one. I, I... DM me, boo. <laughs> Jay Shetty, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> I think he might be. Yeah, he does. He does. It would work. Slide away. Like if. I, his family are very Hindu. Mm. Ah, yeah, shit. I'm the other one. Shit, yeah. Oh, no. Wouldn't work. Couldn't well, work. according according to Darren Osborne, it's no difference. <laughs> yeah. What do you What do you think about the whole? So I've, I've I've sort of been thinking about this as well, like how my, migrant communities, like the ones in like East, like the ones who like in, in inner city East London, um, who could really like who. On the, you know, some of them really rallied behind Corbyn and they really rallied behind the Corbyn message and like all the stuff that came out of it. But there's also like a, a really kind of sizable number of them kind of buying into the whole like neoliberal inspiration bullshit. Um, and I sort of wonder like, because it's, it's a very different dynamic from like, you know, I guess like white university students mm-hmm. who like sell fit tea and then go join like, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers. I mean, you know, because... Class exists. Brown and bougie exists. I, I, I don't think that there's nece- it's necessarily that deep, right? You've got yeah. one party that serves the interests of capital. You had one party which was serving the interests of capital and is now trying to do something different. Mm. Um, and that takes time to message effectively. And you have one party, which may be crumbling, but does stand for your right to have um, platonic and possibly more deep relationships with gorillas. Oh yeah, yeah that yeah. that is UKIP. Yeah, a UKIP counselor in Glasgow said she wanted to fuck a gorilla. 
run by uh, Hussein's brother, Raheem Kassam. <laughs> you know what? I, I really wanted him to run again. I really, really wanted him to run again. Um, he's, I mean... What, he's a what, fun boy. I was um, doing this Sky thing with uh, jeans. Andre Walker, who worked for yeah. Breitbart. And, you know, he's really just like... He's the guy who got the sword and was like challenging ISIS to fight oh him God. on Morning Bridge. <laughs> It was, it was really like, I mean. Oh, that was so good. The fact he still got a column for like the New York Observer. I'm just like, how, bitch, how? Well, it's the, he's, he's the, he's the opposite end of, um, I mean, he's of like, that guy who tried to, who, of the guy from, um, uh, uh, Saveltown, uh, who was arrested for trying to bring a sword onto a plane. Oh my God. Um, but he know, was like, the reason why I had to, he was like, oh, the reason why I had to leave Breitbart was Raheem Kassam. And I was like, oh. So there weren't any problems with Breitbart before the brown guy moved in. Interesting. Yeah. Like, the far right all fucking hate each other. It just so happens they hate us more. Yeah. For now. For now. For now. I feel like they hate, they hate, they hate us more, but they can inflict more damage on their own. And they're so, like, sort of, like, psychopathic that, like, they would rather do that. Than... That day, weirdly, Stephen Wolf, the MEP, got yeah. not sparked out by, what was his name, Mike Hookham. Hookham. Too. Hookham. <laughs> oh, God, uh, what, what a day. What, what a... Wait, he got, he got knocked out? What? I didn't hear this story. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. So it was um, at the European Parliament in Brussels. Uh, there was some kind of brouhaha. I can't even remember what it was, but there was just this beautiful picture of a UKIP MEP, Stephen Wolf, splayed out like a starfish who had been recently born, this hulking, belligerent ham of a white guy standing over him who turns out his name is Mike Hookham who knocked him out, spark out. Um, but I'd, like when I was doing the Sky thing, like Stephen Wolfe came in and Andre Walker was there and they were just, they've got no sense of like what you do or don't say in front of a left-wing journalist. So it was just all coming out. Mm. Um, Andre Walker like going on about Raheem Kassam, how much everyone hates him. The fact that Nigel Farage had called for a second referendum specifically because he'd lost the backing of Steve Bannon. who thought they was no longer relevant. Now he wasn't Mr. Brexit. So he, that was like a real he just, makes, he just makes microwave meals. All I'm saying is that once again, Raheem Kassam wears bootcut jeans. You know who else wears be cut jeans? John yeah. McDonald's tall, otherwise dishy, Desi son. No I've seen it happen because I looked straight, like, as soon as I saw the picture, I was like, mm, he's tall and he's brown. Let me just yeah. check. Is he a snack? The prep game. And then I like, looked down, I was like, no. Is he a snack, but just needs like fash- fashion like advice? I'm not looking for a project. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you are a billionaire fail son who is, seems as large as a truck uh, and, you are a, and you're a billionaire despite your fat guy shirt company, uh, DM us. We'll set you up with Ash. And you want a girl to call you Abu Bakr al I just feel I could make you very unhappy one day. <laughs> Um, Which is what all the right-wing chads really want, right? <laughs> Everyone expecting like a wife that they're going to hate. So, hell yeah! Let's just yeah. Let, let's let's get let's get, add a little more of an anarchist flavor to that particular. <laughs> that particular so we're so we're launching a, we're launching a matchmaking service now. Yeah, the Trash Future dating service where if you are yeah if you are a weird doughy fail son uh, who wants to be domed from the left then uh, send us a DM and we will set you up with the woman of your nightmares. You don't even have to send a pic, just a screenshot of your bank Match balance. Match future. Would... 
where we rebrand uh, redistributive taxation. As <laughs> you know what? I always wanted to get into it, except I'm just really bad at like sex talk, so I don't think it would really work. I don't really understand how things. Also, it's like meant massively prohibited on the show. So. Yeah. yeah, no, no. <laughs> so, so. No, but in, like, I want to get into like fin doming, but I just I don't know how, and I think I lack the kind of nomenclature to do. I mean, a lot of people do it on like chat. Amazon wish lists, don't they? I mean, I would say, I think we've been, we've been, you know, we haven't been mean to Wyatt Coke in a while. I think this is a good intro into Findoming. Um, also, we've just had 40 minutes of extremely reasonable and very, like, articulate content that wasn't very broken-brained. Right, so, come. <laughs> oh, I've got something dumb to say. Um, talking about people, talking about people who are really bad at sex talk, it reminded me of Tiger Woods. Remember when Tiger Woods got in trouble for having all those affairs, and then they released all of those sets that Tiger Woods was sending to whatever that woman was called, and um, and no one really bothered to read them. But if you do, they're like amazing because they're just like really, really weird. And there's loads of like Tiger Woods texting her saying like, "Yeah, I want to do a sex with oh you." My God. <laughs> oh You know my what? God. The best. Um, I had. They're, they're I had really, Tinder they're for amazing. like five minutes. I'd recommend once, them because uh, I didn't really know how dating works. And I was how, like, oh my god, I should get How many Tinder. matches did you get in five minutes? This face. I mean, <laughs> not that you can see it on a podcast. Um, <laughs> this voice, not that you can hear on Tinder. I went on like one date and it lasted 20 minutes because I really hate dates. So I just like left. I was just like, I faked a phone okay. call and left. Couldn't deal with it. And then it was just me and my best mate um, in his gaff drinking um, Duppy Share. It's like the nicest rum. And so I gave my friend my phone and he just like swiped right on everyone. And then we developed what turned out to be the ultimate Tinder filter question. Yeah. Which is Mandela or Mugabe? Oh, shit. That is the filter question. And I've now like I've deleted Tinder, but I've transferred this filter question into real life, which okay. is the minute I hold a man's gaze for more than, say, two and a half seconds, yeah. just lean in. And very seriously, looking deep into his eyes, you go, Mandela or Mugabe. And this, my friends, is why Mufti Menk said, lower your gaze. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the right answer is, of course, both in an incest <laughs> corner. Uh, so if you want to come on, if you want to come on the show, we now have a competition. Send us your answer. Mandela or Mugabe. We can just like, set it up as like a Twitter quiz. Yeah, let's set it up as a Twitter quiz. <laughs> Sounds like a game show that could be hosted by Keith. <laughs> <laughs> shall we? Um, shall we put the mics down and go about our normal lives? I'm really hungry. I'm fucking starving. Yeah, you're never getting out of here. Like, oh shit! Can yeah. I have a last meal? No. <laughs> no. So you see, there's like a camera, right? Go in front of it. Um, there's some Arabic words, but I put some like English. It's this completely innocuous Arabic phrase. Just face east. Repeat <laughs> <laughs> after us. Fine. All right. How much of the Shahada can you remember? Uh, I actually do know it, but I'm not going to say on the show. Well, <laughs> on behalf of all of us here at Trash Future, Ulaikum Salam. Yeah, good, goodbye from me and all my wives in the Mormon wastes of the Utah desert. <laughs> <laughs>